Let's continue our study in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2. We've moved out of chapter number 1 now, and we'll be in chapter number 2 in the first 12 verses as we preach a message I'm titling, A Thriving Witness. A Thriving Witness. Thank you, church, uh, for assembling tonight. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm very grateful, as Pastor mentioned this morning, uh, that our governor allowed the churches to be exempt during this time. Uh, as far as the gathering uh, uh, prohibitions go, and I, I'm thankful that we're able to meet and that some of you were able to assemble. I want us to be mindful of those, though, um, that couldn't assemble and gather with us uh, today. Uh, folks like my wife, who has an autoimmune disease, and, and some of the elderly folks and others with respiratory illness and, and those that would be at risk, um, we ought to pray for them. Because the Bible is clear that we do need to gather. And we do need to assemble as a church. And so those folks that aren't able to assemble with us, and, and, and a lot of churches around the country, their governor didn't give their church an exemption. And a lot of folks are, are kind of hurting inside for community. I don't know about you, but just being thrown out of the normalcies of our church service, I'm hurting a little bit. On the inside, I feel a little bit empty even after such a good message this morning and, and, and a good gathering of folks this morning. I still feel a little off today. And, 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 and you could imagine how those who weren't able to come feel. And so let's, let's be mindful to pray for them. I, I, I want to thank Pastor for his message. What a great, timely message uh, that he preached two times uh, this morning. And I, I was helped both of those times and and we even got word that, that one was saved by watching the live stream. Lisa Perez, Alex and Maricela's daughter, called upon the name of the Lord to be her Savior. During the live stream, I'm very thankful that God can use those mediums to declare the gospel. And uh, very, very grateful for that. Well, let's get into uh, the text tonight. And uh, let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 12. And then we'll study a little bit tonight. A thriving witness. Verse number one of chapter two. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as ye know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation, that's another word for preaching, was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as an earth cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children, that you would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. 
A witness is defined in the dictionary as someone that can give a first-hand account of something they've personally seen, heard, or experienced. My mind automatically goes to the court of law where in jury trials, the key factor in determining a verdict many times rests heavily, heavily on the witnesses brought forth. It's amazing actually to, to read about how that many attorneys will, will go the distance in prepping uh, their witnesses before they allow their witnesses to take the stand. They know there's a lot on the line and so they'll, they'll, they'll instruct them on what to wear and, and, and what tone of voice to have and, and exactly the words to say and not to say, what body language is appropriate to use and how to answer a tough question because those attorneys know how important a witness is to a jury trial. In fact, you can look up many famous trials and the entire trial came down to the report of just one single witness. In the same way that there are witnesses in the court of law, there are also witnesses in the church. That is, there are those, even here tonight, I'm one of them, who've experienced salvation firsthand. That is, we've heard the word of God. We believed in the gospel to save us, and now we can give witness or give a firsthand account of how Christ has changed our life. And if Christ has changed your life, being a witness is not a suggestion. It's not an option. According to Acts chapter 1 in verse 8, it is a command. Jesus told the first church, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses. Listen, churches, as born-again Christians, God has entrusted us to give a first-hand account of what we've experienced in salvation. He's entrusted us to be his mouthpiece and to tell a lost and dying world that God loved us and sent his son to die for us and he saved us from our sin and he redeemed us and and he washed us and he justified us and he changed us. We are to be witnesses of that truth. I don't think there's ever been a greater opportunity perhaps in my lifetime for us to be witnesses for Christ than right now. Simply considering the the worry, the unease, the the fear, the uncertainty of our world because of the virus, I believe we have a great opportunity to share Christ. I don't know about you, but I firmly believe in my heart it's really not time for Christians to back up. It's time for us to step up. It's not time for us to shut up. It's time for us to speak up. It's not time for, 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 for those that, that have been born again and, and know firsthand what God's done in their life and have been entrusted with the witness uh, for Christ. It is not time for us to sit back and complain about all the obstacles that we face in our gospel witness. I think it's time for us to be positive about all the opportunities we've been given to reach the lost during this, these days. Now more than ever, we need a strong witness for the cause of Christ. There's a lot on the line when it comes to our witness. Hear me, please. Just like in the court of law, there's a lot on the line when a witness takes a stand. We're talking about souls in the balance. We're talking about eternity at stake. And I firmly believe that there are many folks who go to heaven or hell based upon the gospel witness they have in their life and the quality of it. 
In our text, Paul has already commended the Thessalonians for, for, for having a thriving church. They're a young church, but they were thriving in faith and hope and love. Now in verses 1 through 12, he's going to teach them how they can have a thriving witness. And he's going to do this by using a particular teaching method that was popular in that day called mimesis. This is important to the text because this is a word that's connected to our English word mimic. This is where we begin to understand what Paul's intent was based on the genre of which he's writing. Paul is going to give his personal testimony about how he and his missionary team, Silas and and Timothy, witnessed to this church for three weeks in the synagogue when they first came to Thessalonica. And in so doing, he's telling this church and he's telling our church tonight, mimic me. When you're witnessing for Christ, do what I did. Now let me be clear. Paul's not giving us a seminar titled Proven Methods for Effective Evangelism. Or or Seven Irrefutable Principles of Preaching to the Lost. In fact, his teaching has nothing to do with practical methods for witnessing. Those are important. I'm all about being creative and reaching the lost. But his teaching is more about the character of the witness. Paul's going to teach us that if we want to be a thriving witness for the cause of Christ, we must do two things with great character. We must speak the gospel and we must live the gospel. Listen, both are equally as important. You you can't just speak the gospel and then have a life that contradicts what you're speaking. And you just can't live a gospel-centered life as powerful as that is without ever having the courage to speak. Romans 10 asks the question, how shall they hear without a preacher? So I want to study Paul's testimony. How he reached the Thessalonian church. Because he's going to teach us how we can be a thriving witness. In verses 1 through 6, he he begins by teaching us two ways that we should speak the gospel. That's where it starts, speaking the gospel. And he starts with this, speak the gospel with boldness. We read verse 1 and and Paul was recalling how he went to the church of Thessalonica and in the synagogue for those three weeks he preached the gospel. You can go look at it in Acts chapter 17. A clear presentation based on Old Testament scripture. And he said that his words were not in vain. Their efforts were not in vain. And we know by studying chapter 1 already the gospel did have an impact on this church. So how did it do it? How did Paul's message even though he's only there a short time have such great impact here's here's how he spoke with great boldness he didn't back up he didn't shut up even though the society at large was not welcoming of his message in fact in the first part of verse 2 he recalls how he suffered in the past and he was bold in spite of past persecution if you know Acts 16 It speaks of his time in Philippi when he planted that church. And that's the place that he was before he went to Thessalonica. And and while at Philippi, we understand that his suffering was very physical. He was beaten with rods. Him and Silas were placed in the stocks. They they were imprisoned. But he also said in verse 2 that he was shamefully entreated. So, So it wasn't just physical persecution. It was social persecution. He was embarrassed because he would have been stripped naked and beaten in public. 
On top of that, it was extra shameful because he was a Roman citizen and he was supposed to be exempt from this type of punishment. And and, and here's what he tells the Thessalonians. Listen, I've endured past persecution, but it didn't stop me from coming to Thessalonica and declaring the same gospel with the same amount of boldness. Paul didn't let the obstacles to his witness in the past stop him from seizing the opportunities to witness in the future. What an example for us to follow in our witness. Man, if you, if you do witness on a regular basis, then, then you know there are times whenever we attempt to witness and, and we get shut down right in the middle of the conversation or sometimes before the conversation even starts. There's times when we get stood up by a friend or a coworker after they accepted our invitation to church. There's, there's times when we get ostracized by a family member all because of our efforts to live a holy life. There are times when our gospel witness faces great obstacles, but we can't let the obstacles that we have faced in the past hinder our boldness to seize the opportunities for witnessing in the future. If you've invited and they haven't come, hey, invite again. If you've lived a holy life humbly but boldly in front of family members, but they've distanced themselves from you, don't stop living a holy life. That's a great witness. Paul also said that he was bold in spite of present contention. The last part of verse 2, he shifts to not speaking about his persecution in Philippi, but the contention he faced when he went to Thessalonica. That word contention is an athletic term. It means to struggle. You might picture two linemen uh, colliding. Their their helmets bashing each other. They're grabbing each other's jersey. They're, They're struggling, contending against one another. That's the kind of contention that Paul met when he went to Thessalonica. Now imagine how tired he already was. How weary he already was. Not just physically, but emotionally. And mentally and even spiritually, he got ran out of Philippi, went straight to a place that was just as hostile. The reason he had to leave Thessalonica after three weeks was because they did not welcome his message. Yet he teaches us that in spite of past persecution, in spite of present contention, he was still bold to witness. And it teaches us this truth and application. Our gospel witness doesn't get any days off. We don't get to hang it up because we're tired. Whether it's in the past or it's contention with our, with our gospel witness today, we have no permission to quit. We must remain bold in our witness no matter what we face. That doesn't mean we have the right to be annoying about it or condescending or impatient in our approach to the lost. It just means that we are courageously persistent because we believe in the power of the gospel to change lives. Which poses the question, where does this kind of boldness come from? Does it come as just some kind of determination that we manufacture based on our personalities? Does it come because we're stubborn? Does it come out of sheer willpower? Paul says this, I was bold in God. The kind of boldness that you have to have to be a witness in spite of past persecution and present contention is the only kind of boldness, the only kind of boldness you'll get in those, uh, those situations is going to come from heaven. How do you get it? Acts 4 teaches us. We spend time with Jesus. 
Go read Acts 4 when Peter and John were placed in the middle of the Sanhedrin. And they, they were told to, they, they, were, they were called upon to give an answer as to why they were preaching in the name of Jesus. And they gave a bold answer. And the people were amazed. And they said, we can only come to one conclusion, Brother Caden. And the conclusion was this. These guys have been with Jesus. The more you're a Jesus, the more faith you have. The more you believe in his resurrection, the more you believe in his power that works in and through you. And the more you believe about Jesus, the more you speak about Jesus. Because you, listen, you, you speak boldly about what you believe deeply. And so get with Jesus. Get with him in private prayer. Get with him in private worship. Get at his word. Be acquainted with him in a very intimate way. And your faith will begin to build. And you will have the courage that only comes from heaven. A thriving witness speaks the gospel with boldness. And then Paul gives us a second way to speak. He said, speak the gospel with purity. Let's revisit verse 3 through 6. For our exhortation was not of, watch all these words, deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time use we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. What's Paul doing? He's telling us what his witness did not contain in terms of his approach. His words were not deceitful. They weren't unclean. They weren't in guile. He's saying, I wasn't trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. I wasn't using trickery. His words weren't flattering in efforts to be pleasing and, and palatable to his listeners. His words weren't spoken out of a spirit of covetousness and, and, and greed for, for money. He's saying his words weren't impure. He witnessed out of a pure motive to please God because he knew that ultimately it was God that tried his heart, not men. I think sometimes Christians and preachers alike, in their witness, they're more like salesmen than they are ambassadors for Christ. And there's a big difference between witnessing and salesmanship. When we're witnessing, listen, we're not trying to sell Jesus. If we take that approach, we'll say whatever we need to say in the moment in order to make following Jesus sound as comfortable and as convenient as we possibly can. As though he can be put on a clearance aisle. That's deceit. That's unclean. That's impure. That's straight up false teaching. Because there's seldom, seldom is it comfortable following Jesus. There's a lot of times in my discipleship life that I'm not really I guess enjoying the ease of being a Jesus follower. Oh, I love the joy. I love the peace. I love the grace that I get to live in. But there are times, listen, when it's not convenient to be a gospel witness. Jesus had a huge crowd following him. I mean, he had garnered all kinds of respect from people. But at some point, he decided he was going to have to draw a line in the sand. And he was going to have to separate the men from the boys. He was going to have to separate those that were coming for entertainment and those that were coming because they loved them. 
and wanted to follow him. And so you know what he said? He went off into this message, and it, it, it wasn't very palatable. He said this, if you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up your cross daily. You've got to forsake all, including your family if necessary. And you've got to follow me. He didn't use a dove as a symbol to represent Christians. That means peace. He, could have used, he didn't use a rainbow. Back then it meant a promise. You know what he used? A cross, a bloody wooden cross. He wasn't trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. He wasn't trying to speak in guile. He wasn't intentionally trying to thin the crowd and be irritable, but he was being straight up with people. And we ought to do the same thing. That isn't to say that in our witness or in this pulpit we should be angry or condescending or impatient. But listen, as gospel witnesses, please hear me. We can't water down or sugarcoat the message of the gospel. We can't manipulate people to say a prayer and just ask Jesus into their hearts without ever mentioning sin. The, the depravity of the soul. The need for repentance of their sin. We can't deceitfully tell people from this pulpit or in a break room or at a family reunion, if you follow Jesus, your life will get easy. We can't do that. That's guile. That's deceit. You're going to hear in a moment, it doesn't mean we have to be angry, but we need to be truthful, pure in our motive and pure in our words. Paul says if you want to thrive as a gospel witness, then you need to speak with boldness, and you need to speak the gospel with purity. And in verse 7 through 12, he, he takes a shift. And he says there's another element to being a thriving witness. It's not just speaking the gospel. It's living the gospel. And he teaches us in verse 7 that we ought to live the gospel with gentleness. Look at it in verse 7. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse or a mother cherisheth her children. Pastor, I think that's the perfect example of gentleness. A mother with her infant. I really do. I've often told people that, that perhaps the, the, the best picture on earth that we can have of an unconditional agape type love that we experience from Jesus is a mother's love for a child. They are extremely gentle, almost naturally so. I struggled when Kevin was born. I, I struggled with learning gentleness. You know, I mean, his head was flopping everywhere. And, and the worst part when, when, I, when we was still in the hospital was, was, was the handoff. I still get nervous with the handoff. I never was a running back. And it's one thing to drop a football, another thing to drop a, a, a human. And so when I go and, 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 I, and I go see you know, all the babies that we have in fellowship, I feel like, like I'm a regular visitor at the hospital. But, but I go out there and see these babies, and you want to hold them, I'm, I'm thinking inwardly, no, I don't, but I'm going to act like I do. <laughs> Truly, I do, but I'm, I'm nervous, still nervous about it because I'm not naturally gentle. Right? i, I got to figure all that out. But a mom is. A nurse is. And that's the picture Paul uses to, to, to show us this is how you live out the gospel as a witness. You've got to be gentle. 
The Apostle Paul knew how to speak the truth with boldness. But he also knew how to live the gospel with gentleness. And sometimes, as conservative Bible believers, we like to create a false dichotomy between boldness and love. We think in our minds that real Bible believers have to be hateful in order to prove their loyalty to the Scripture. But it was the Apostle Paul who instructed us to speak the truth in love. You can do both. A mother proves that. She can instruct her children firmly and nurture them all at the same time. I think sometimes we let our passion for righteousness turn into a very judgmental and harsh spirit towards those who don't measure up to our standard of righteousness or those who frankly just frustrate us with their foolishness. But you really don't see a good mother getting harsh and hateful towards her infant child because her infant is simply hungry or sleepy, or needs comfort, or is just acting like a baby. We should have that same spirit of gentleness toward those we are trying to reach and towards the babes in Christ that we're entrusted to care for. That's how we should live out the gospel. Then Paul moves on. He says, don't just live it out with gentleness. Live it out with sacrifice. Look at verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we are willing to have imparted unto you, not the gospel of God only, watch this, but also our own souls because you are dear to us. There's a couple of elements of sacrifice. The first is the sacrificial giving of our lives. And, and he reminds the church there in verse 8, follow this, that he didn't just come and preach the gospel for three weeks, get a love offering and hit the road. He said, no, we gave you our lives our souls and that's exactly what a thriving witness does they don't just share the gospel with the lost a thriving witness shares their life with the lost and when you think of a nursing mother she doesn't just turn her baby over to someone else the moment they get home that mother who who who, who affectionately desires a relationship with that infant she sacrifices sleep and her own personal comfort to feed her baby around the clock. If she has a decent husband, he helps every now and then. Being a thriving witness doesn't just mean, I want you to hear this. It doesn't just mean we get someone to pray a prayer to ask Jesus into their heart and we walk away and go find the next one. It doesn't mean we give them a book to read and wish them luck on their new journey. A thriving witness doesn't turn his convert over to a babysitter. A thriving witness takes personal responsibility just like a nursing mother does and pours their time and energy and life sacrificially into nourishing and growing that new believer. This is why we, we are currently training lay people from all ages and demographics in our church to help us in the discipleship of new believers. Because a new believer needs a spiritual mentor to walk through the infant stages of Christianity with them. As good as, as books are out there, or as good as Brother Mike's first steps class may be, that doesn't get the job done. A book won't help a new convert navigate their way through a miscarriage. A first steps class won't help a new believer have faith in God when they unexpectedly lose their job. 
They need someone who's mature in Christ to walk them through these times. They need someone to sacrificially love them and share their life with them. To answer the phone late at night. To text back when you're tired. To invite them over for Sunday afternoon lunch when really you just want family time. But there's a second element of sacrifice mentioned in verse 9 and it deals with sacrificial labor. Look at it. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable in any of you. So Paul was making the point, and if you study it, you'll understand that he was getting financial support probably from the church of Philippi, but he still chose to make tents. Still chose to be bivocational, so he didn't have to take a salary from this baby church. Now, now we know... And this church does a fine job at it, that, that a pastor and staff, if the church is a- able and the pastor and staff labor in the word and the oversight of the church, then we understand that we should take care of them. Again, this church does an amazing job, but isn't it admirable, the Apostle Paul, that he was willing to sacrificially labor so this young church didn't feel a financial strain? And you're not in that situation. You're not a church planner. You're not a missionary. But we are to mimic his sacrifice. You understand that people, especially lost people, really don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. When is the last time you sacrificed for somebody you were trying to reach? When is the last time you did something for them without expecting anything in return? Think about the sacrifices, men, that you were willing to make to reach your wife. Now, my wife chased me, so she made a lot of sacrifices, but in all seriousness, I did a lot of silly things to get her attention. In fact, a lot of men do. We're illogical in those moments. There are times when, when we'll write her notes, long notes, and buy her gifts, answer her phone calls even when we're tired, drive far distances just to see her. What makes us think that we shouldn't approach reaching the lost the same way? Why not write them a note? Why not buy them a meal? Why not mow their lawn? Why not fix their car? Why not invite them over to your house? Why not listen to them when you're exhausted? Somehow we think that witnessing is this thing where we meet someone at the altar and say, repeat after me, or meet a kid at VBS in the hall and explain the gospel and pray after me, and we we ask them to ask Jesus into their heart, and and it's like, boom, we're, we're good. We're a soul winner now. Somehow we get this idea in our mind that if we can just get enough boldness to invite them to church, then boy, our hands are clean. At least we've invited them. I think we ought to be willing to sacrifice for the lost. To labor for the lost. To toil for the one God has placed in our past to reach with the gospel. If God allows us, we're going to have an all-church outreach in a couple weeks. I, I, I feel embarrassed to even call that sacrifice. Based on what Paul was willing to sacrifice. But in our context, I guess I will ask you to come toil for the gospel. Come toil and walk two or three blocks. Come toil. You don't even have to talk to anybody. Just canvas a neighborhood with the gospel. And God has blessed that in the past, by the way. Yeah. Paul said we should live out the gospel with gentleness, with sacrifice. He closes by 
saying you got to live out the gospel with integrity. This is so important. Paul said that he walked worthy of God in verse 12. Among these Thessalonians, he explains what that means up in verse 10 when he said he lived a life in a manner that was three things, holy, just, and unblameable. And so should we. Yet sometimes the biggest enemy to the gospel is the church itself. Sometimes the biggest enemy to the Christian's witness is their own life. And this is frustrating but true. Sometimes the biggest, wit- the biggest enemy to your witness is the life of another Christian. Please hear me. How we live should not come in conflict with the gospel we preach. That's what Paul's saying. He even mentions it in chapter 1, in verse 5. You know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. We were above reproach. We lived holy lives, even while being persecuted and shamefully entreated. We were unblameable. Hear me, church. How we handle our business transactions in our community should be done with integrity. How we pay our bills and when we pay our bills should be done with integrity. How we talk at work and how we work at work should be done with integrity. How we treat our boss or how the boss treats his employees at work should be done with integrity. How we conduct ourselves on the weekend should be done with integrity. How we handle offenses when they come should be done with integrity. How we conduct ourselves while playing a sport or coaching a sport are watching a sport, Lord help me, should be done with integrity. Hey, how we conduct ourselves at Walmart when the toilet paper's out? Again, should be done with integrity. In all seriousness, how we deal with the stresses, the unknowns, and the inconveniences of this global virus should be done with integrity. Why? Because a lost and dying world is watching you. And you're no different, and if you're no different, in your actions and, and in your reactions, in your attitudes, your words, or your post, then your witness will have no impact. If you don't live with integrity, please hear me, for no other reason, then at least live with integrity in our community for the sake of your church. Or your fellow church members who are at their workplaces trying to make a difference. Don't live your life in such a way that hinders the witness and the credibility of other Christians who are truly trying to make a difference. Filter all your posts, all your attitudes, all your words, all your reactions through a gospel witness filter and say, will this hurt my credibility or my church's credibility as we're trying our best to reach our community for Christ? Through the text, Paul says to this young church and to our church tonight, mimic me. Do what I did. Model my witness and you'll thrive in yours. That means speak the gospel in boldness.
Speak the gospel with purity and live the gospel with gentleness, sacrifice, and integrity. To sum up the text, a thriving witness is one who speaks and lives the gospel in a manner worthy of God. And the Lord knows we need thriving witnesses right now. And may those of us in the fellowship family, in this building and watching online tonight, may we purpose in our hearts that during this incredibly difficult and unprecedented season of life, we will be a thriving witness. One who speaks the gospel and lives the gospel in a way that is worthy of God. If you agree with the Bible tonight, say amen together.